Hey, have you ever dreamt of building an app that impacts the daily lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, now is your chance. Monday.com is an online teamwork platform that just launched a contest to develop apps for the 100,000 teams that use Monday.com for the daily work. The prices are insane. Monday.com brings teams together so you can plan, manage, and track everything your team is working on in one centralized place. The Monday Apps Challenge is bringing developers around the world together to compete in order to build apps that can improve the way teams work together on Monday.com. Check it out at monday.com slash data science. That's monday.com slash data science. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home Podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Thanks everyone for being here once again. I am Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. This is podcastdatasciencesathome.com. And I'm your host for the next 20, 30 minutes. I don't know, let's see how it goes. Uh, for those who are uh, not on Twitch, um, just so you know, uh, those who take the podcast from uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or uh, Podbean, Stitcher, whatever client you are using, uh, just so you know, I am currently on twitch.tv slash coding gossip. It's my new channel where uh, you can actually see me doing stuff, uh, usually in Python or Rust, depending on what is the interest uh, of the period and what uh, uh, what in fact I'm, I'm building, depending, I will choose one of the two programming languages that uh, uh, better suit it's the, uh, the purpose. Um, so just feel free to uh, drop by. Uh, it will be nice to have you there, uh, get some of your feedback. Um, in case you cannot make it, uh, don't forget to join us on the official Discord channel. And uh, I actually never remember the link. Uh, I will put in the show notes of this episode. Um, it's a, the place where we usually speak all things data science and machine learning. Uh, we discussed some previous episodes. And of course, we can also propose uh, your uh, you know, most favorite topic or something that you would like me to speak about in the near future. Um, it's always nice to have you there as well. But now let's uh, go back to the show. And actually, uh, I would like to continue a conversation that I had, um, I think, two episodes ago. It was about uh, machine learning in production. And in particular, I had a chat with uh, Mr. Adam Leon Smith, who's an expert with uh, testing uh, machine learning models and systems, more than models. Um, he's a very talented guy and the conversation was so smooth, so many interesting news and techniques. And uh, in um, this episode, I would like to continue um, on that uh, side of things so that you can have, uh, you know, we can still speak about machine learning in production, but this time uh, speak about testing and uh, in particular also model evaluation. So um, speaking about um, model evaluation in uh, production, well, sometimes I've noticed that uh, these two words don't actually fit well together. Uh, I mean, model evaluation and production. And uh, most of the times, at least um, in many episodes in my career, I've seen that once a data scientist has built a machine learning model and uh, he or she has evaluated that model on uh, you know the usual holdout set, um, 
the model has been deployed in production and from there on uh, there was an engineer in charge of uh, making that model um, you know um, let that model survive in production and uh, manage that model observe that model and so on and so forth which i personally find um, this you know strategy or habit um, quite wrong uh, because i have noticed that whenever people hear the word production uh, they think that only engineers are allowed to touch that that stuff uh, you know because whoa it's production you know you don't you don't touch production just if you are a data scientist uh, which my opinion is wrong uh, data scientists always have to be in charge not of managing production environments but uh, whatever is related to a machine learning model in production, they also have to be in that loop. Um, the reason why I'm saying that is because many times I've seen um, really data scientists abandoning the machine learning model completely just because it was in production, as if a model in production uh, can never degrade its performance and uh, can never start sell, say, saying, you know, predicting things nonsense or, or or drifting away from what was the accuracy of that model in a very controlled environment that is, you know, the desk or the Jupyter notebook of the data scientist who created that model. So um, there are two essential things, or one in particular, one thing that uh, happens all the time is, uh, uh, I think I've been speaking about this a number of times, which is the uh, statistical drift, right? So when you train a machine learning model, you are usually feeding that model uh, with data that are usually historic transactions or samples <clears throat> that someone has collected for you or you know the company the organization you work for has been collecting these things before you arrived um, or you just have collected these things at the time you created that model which means that after six months or 12 months that the model is in production well probably you should check something <laughs> because the model has been trained on data that are no longer the you know that they're not online data so probably if there is some change in the physical phenomenon that where the model is um, is 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 performing prediction well you want to check that there is no statistical drift between the new data or the newest data the model is being fed with uh, with respect to the original training data set the model was fed uh, six or 12 months ago. So uh, this is something that happens all the time, as I said, and uh, which brings us to um, one very important strategy to have in production, uh, which is online data and online evaluation. So offline evaluation is usually what, you know, we are all familiar with. You have a data scientist who um, is um, cleaning data, collecting data, cleaning, cleansing, transforming, doing EDA, all these nice things that a data scientist usually does. Uh, then there is feature engineering, then they choose the algorithm, the, the ensemble of models, etc., etc. So what happens there is that the model is evaluated on, uh, you know, offline, um, on data that are at the, um, you know, at the hands of the data scientist in that particular moment. Now, what happens when you put that model in production, when you deploy that model in production, new data comes in, and uh, and this is so-called online data, and after, let's say, a couple of months, you will start collecting data that start diverging from what was the training set at the very beginning. 
And so in the lifetime of the model, in the life cycle of the model, uh, you would start observing something that the model was not prepared for, uh, which is this online data that keep arriving into your system. Now, what you want to do, and that's kind of a best practice now, is to uh, maintain that online data up to date because you want to uh, evaluate online the uh, deployed model uh, against this online data that keep updating, um, that you have to keep updated as the business goes. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing here, of course, but it's the concept that is, I think, the most important thing to, to, bring, uh, to bring home. Regardless of the domain you are, and regardless the uh, let's say the frequency that you see this new data feeding your your existing or deployed model uh, one thing stays across domains which is keep that online data uh, some sort of some kind of the holdout set uh, that you used in offline evaluation keep it keep a version also as an online uh, evaluation strategy right so keep that data uh, maintain that data up to date as well, because that's where you are going to uh, perform or to evaluate the model as it is serving the real um, the real users, right? Now, what happens is, um, uh, well, here I want to give you a very interesting uh, example. It's not really an example; it's something that happened for real in uh, in uh, in my career. Uh, very recently, one of my clients had. Um, uh, at the problem that uh, I had to solve, um, my clients is operating in, um, uh, you know, um, food delivery uh, services. So it's one of these, um, there are a few now, um, uh, services where you can purchase uh, snacks online and uh, and they will have uh, they will put some drivers at your disposal and basically what happens is that you purchase something and after half an hour, one hour, you get someone delivering your snacks at home. Now, this is an amazing service. Uh, I built a machine learning model because, uh, of course, I cannot disclose everything of what I did, but in fact, the, uh, my client wanted, to, wanted some form of optimization uh, in order to predict where the biggest volumes of particular categories of food or snacks were or would have been um, uh, demanded in uh, a particular geographic location, right? So that they could pre-allocate drivers and uh, smash the, I think they had some, some uh, an upper bound, they had a limit of 15 minutes delivery or something like that, or 10 minute delivery, I don't remember. But anyway, to get there, uh, they realized that there was a form of optimization they could have done, which was, well, predicting where people are going to buy let's say chips and uh, just pack people you know drivers of chips and let them drive in that area uh, so that you know whenever there was a new uh, request or a new order online uh, the closest driver to the order would have just fulfilled it and uh, and they would have had like uh, 10 minutes or less uh, minutes delivery for that chips now this is a a typical machine learning model uh, problem in which a model would perform a prediction in time. Now, long story short, this model that I built was working very, very nicely, to be honest, uh, before COVID. Uh, after COVID, and immediately after you know the mess that, that happened, um, the model started degrading, right? So this means that uh, the habits of 
many many people in different geographic locations uh, started changing because of course people were buying much more food from home and uh, not just chips but also you know uh, pasta cheese and and not just snacks but other food so this literally messed up with the predictions of the uh you know that model started you know would have become useless completely useless if i didn't do something that i just explained which is online data so that model uh first of all that model never degraded accuracy um and i'm very proud of that because it was like a, uh, it was it was an interesting strategy that i used um so basically that model could uh, let's say uh, correct its prediction uh, during the 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 pandemics, right? And so right after the explosion and the lockdowns, etc., uh, that model adjusted its prediction in less than two weeks. So actually, in nine days, uh, we could see that model improving. Um, and basically, uh, you know, adjusting the predictions uh, to the new conditions of the world, which were indeed uh, different genders, uh, different demographics, different uh, characteristics of the of the uh, phenomenon that we were observing or we were modeling, uh, they changed and the model basically adapted itself to, to the new conditions. And why was that possible? It's because we collected some online data and this online data, we kept this data, you know, uh, up to date and so we kept reevaluating the model online and this is key so never abandon your model once it is in production in fact your model starts living right after deployment right uh, it starts living right the day after it is uh, being in uh, being placed in production or beyond service or whatever now, there are several strategies that one can use um, whenever it comes to uh, model evaluation. Uh, one, we have definitely borrowed it from, uh, uh, from statisticians, which is um, uh, probably the most famous one is uh, uh, A-B testing. So here, you know, we have seen many, many domains using this strategy, uh, especially in the pharmaceutical industry um, and healthcare. So A-B testing consists of having uh, two or multiple groups um, of end users who are exposed to uh, multiple versions of the same model, right? And so what happens there is like, if you think about a web page, they've been doing this with social media and web pages as well. So by changing, for example, the color of a, uh, of a button, they provide two versions, the yellow and the blue, let's say, and then they measure the, um, you know, some metrics related to how easy it is for a user to navigate the website or how easy it is, how, how long does it take for a user to click on the button or to, you know, or the, if they ignore it completely or, or if they don't even know where they are in the page and stuff like that. So by creating different versions of the, let's say, web page in this case, but it could be a model, machine learning model in, uh, in the other case, you would expose these people, these end users, to the two different versions, and then you start measuring things, right? You start measuring metrics. And then it's a simple, uh, it's a matter of having a simple statistical test uh, that basically allows you to identify uh, so-called statistical significance of the differences between model A and model B. And so here you can have a Z-score, uh, you know, you calculate the mean of uh, of a metric in um, in the model A, another the same the same metric in model B, and then you normalize by what is the uh, square root of the standard deviation to the power of two, something like that. So you basically normalize with respect to the spread 
of these metrics and um, and you have a score which is usually the called the z score which is between zero and one meaning that if that number is close to zero uh, you know there is not really difference too much difference between model a and model b otherwise there is a statistical difference and you measure these things with p-values or with bayesian whatever so that's one way of um deciding once you are in production what are you gonna do next right if you have a another model let's say model b and model a is already in production how would you go by um, you know replacing or improving model a uh, once model a has been deployed and so uh, a b testing is one of those strategies the um the other one is probably a bit more you know a bit smarter i would say uh, which is borrowed to us by uh, well we borrowed it from uh, uh, reinforcement learning dynamic programming actually reinforcement learning it's the so-called multi-armed bandit um what is multi-armed bandit is slot machines right if you have like five slot machines you don't know which one you want to play so there is a problem there you want to understand which slot machine is paying the highest reward um, now let's assume that we are under the assumption of uh, you know we are simplifying a lot here but imagine there is uh, one of these five machines that is give, paying you a bigger reward higher uh, yeah bigger reward and so you don't know which one is it of course and uh, uh, so the first thing you do is playing with them all you know you go into exploratory mode and you try to explore and you know detect the slot machine that is going to pay you the most right and once you detect that machine well you go for it right so that's the strategy that you usually take now how much do you explore and how much do you exploit that's a, di a dilemma uh, you know uh, and that's indeed it's called exploration exploitation dilemma for a reason um so what you want to do there is exploring as as much as you can but not that much and then exploit as much as you can right so that's what you want to do so that's exactly what happens with the machine learning uh, with multiple models right you would like to have an approach that is a bit smarter than pure a b testing uh, due to the fact that with a b test um, you r would take the risk of uh, uh, sending uh, of, of you know forcing an excessive number of users uh, to use a model that is not the best model so far and and you know just for the sake of 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 collecting those metrics and and building that statistics that i said uh, you need a considerable high uh, number of of users who use model a and model b but at the same time you don't want to have a low quality of service because those users who are giving you the data for model a are probably using the worst model and so their service will be degraded or the quality of the service will be will be quite poor and so that's why a smarter way of doing that is using the uh, it's called mab approach which stands for indeed multi-armed bandit approach it's something you know that's nothing new of course there's this is not rocket science it's just uh, best practices that you would like to um to perform when it comes to machine learning um in uh, um, when it comes to testing and this is more specific to neural networks um, this is actually something that we have discussed two episodes ago with Adam um, about the neuron coverage so this is specifically designed uh, around neural networks right so we spoke about neuron coverage and uh, 
In this episode, I would like to dig a bit into deeper into uh, uh, neuron coverage. Uh, what is neuron coverage? Well, is um, when you have a neural network, uh, in fact, you have, you know, the network is formed by a, a bunch of neurons, right? And uh, now what happens during test, uh, during testing? So when you test the model offline, so you're a data scientist, you have your uh, holdout set um, at hand, and you use that holdout set to uh, validate your model and test your model, right? Now, what happens is that you take a certain input um, and you let, you know, you feed the model with that input, let's call it X. Um, and then you see if the model correctly gives you an answer, so makes the prediction correctly, right? In that case, you count the uh, number of neurons that have been activated for that prediction, right? And so you start, you know, collecting these metrics and you start counting the number of units, the number of uh, neuron, neurons that are activated uh, for each input X um, and uh, that is predicted correctly, right? Now, what happens when you're an online, so when you see data that you have never seen before, well, you measure exactly the same activation uh, coverage, right? And if you observe a similar number there, uh, you're good. So usually a good test set has close to 100% uh, neuron coverage. Um, and of course, you know, if in production you are, you're observing, for example, I'm, I'm simplifying and exaggerating, 50% of the neurons are activated uh, only, uh, well, then there is something fishy there, right? So there is something fishy because it means that Someone is attacking your model, so they are pro they are feeding the model with something that you have never you really have never seen before, um, or you know they are forging some data uh, to fool your model, and that's usually called adversarial attacks. More on that in a minute. Um, so yeah, these are the things that you know. These are easy things to measure. Um, it's uh, because also you have to pay attention to what type of testing do you perform in production it's very important that you know you don't uh, overload uh, your infrastructure of calculations that are not necessary or well are just testing um, they're not necessary for the sake of you know providing the service they are very very useful for uh, the, the 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 coverage the testing of the model the robustness of the model and so on and so forth um so and this neuron coverage is quite um, easy to implement and also doesn't require a lot of it's not compute intensive uh, for obvious reasons uh, I think I mentioned robustness right now and the robustness is indeed the last um, well there are so many it's just that uh, it's one of the uh, uh, easiest and uh, and the most interesting metrics that you also want to observe in um, uh, in machine learning models, which is uh, robustness of a model. So robustness is uh, something that we have been taking from uh, mathematicians uh, and perturbation theory. Uh, so in fact, this is we say a model is epsilon robust uh, to a delta perturbation. So this is something that. Uh, you know, for those who are not familiar with delta and uh, and epsilon, usually delta is uh, a perturbation that you apply to an input, and epsilon is an upper bound that you want to observe in the um, uh, in the prediction. So basically, you have the input x. Uh, how does robustness test work? Well, you have an input text, uh, an input x. 
right? So you perturb this x by a certain delta, right? We will choose what delta is in a, in a second. So you get x and let's say x plus delta, right? Uh, or x minus delta. So let's call it x prime. So you have x and x prime, which are the uh, original input and the perturbed version of the input. Now, what happens to the prediction once you run this into the model, uh, you will have f of x, which is the prediction from input x, and f of x prime, which is the prediction of the perturbed uh, version of x, right? Now, the difference between f of x and f of x prime, so the difference between the prediction on the uh, real data and the prediction on the perturbed data should be uh, at most epsilon. If that's the case, uh, it, we can say that you have an epsilon robust model to a, a delta perturbation, right? So if you perturb at most of delta, your model doesn't go off more than epsilon, right? So this is an upper bound um, that you are setting for your model. And so during testing, what you want to do is setting, you know, fixing this delta and this epsilon. And these are the two numbers that you would like to observe in, uh, in production, in online testing. Now I'm telling you, these are two very important tests, uh, the neuron coverage and robustness. Of course, neuron coverage is very much specific to uh, deep learning and neural networks. Um, but in fact, the neuron coverage plus the robustness uh, are one of the easiest strategy. I'm not saying to remove completely, but to mitigate consistently uh, a very nasty attack, which are called um, adversarial attacks that we have seen uh, a number of times already in computer vision. And uh, that consists of uh, having um, let's say an image, you know, you perturb an image, uh, for example, a, a street sign uh, is perturbed with a delta perturbation, uh, where delta is probably not noticeable to the human eye, but it can fool the classifier uh, completely. And so a neural classifier can be completely fooled by just perturbing an image uh, as uh, by delta. And now by delta could be a bunch of pixels or a post-it attached to the uh, to the image, and uh, instead of seeing that stop sign, the classifier would say you can push gas 120. <laughs> so that's a problem, of course. That it's, it's an attack to the computer vision system, um, and that would be mm, mitigated. Uh, probably not 100%, but definitely it can be detected by a neuron coverage plus a robustness approach uh, to deep learning and neural networks. Uh, of course, and uh, I want to take you know the distance from from what I'm saying. Uh, if the in this very case, in this uh, very specific case, if the adversarial attack has been conducted in a particular way uh, for which that delta perturbation is not really random, but is forged. And, you know, they usually operate at the stochastic gradient descent level. Um, uh, then, of course, neuron coverage and robustness will not, probably will not help you detecting these types of attacks. Well, I think that's it for today. This is um, uh, this was something that I wanted to share with you. And uh, I am uh, very glad to have you uh, uh, you know, sticking around. Uh, again, I renew the invitation to join the Discord channel. It's the official channel. Uh, it's a chat. You can drop by whenever you want. 
um, drop a message, uh, propose new episodes, or even criticize some of the past ones. So I always love constructive criticism, of course. Um, and also for those who are consuming the podcast from the, let's say, classic channel like Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other client of your choice, uh, be aware, uh, I'm currently on twitch.tv. You're not obliged to go there. I will keep post posting um, uh, podcasts here on this um, on Apple Podcast and all the others that you already know. But if you want me to see uh, in action with some, you know, writing some code, well, Twitch TV is probably the best place to be. Uh, twitch.tv slash coding gossip with one G. It's really it for today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.